Welcome back to the next episode of Entrebind. I'm your host, PJ. So today's episode is going to be a bit long with a lot of information embedded into it. So I'm going to skip the introduction, jump right into the storytelling. What if there exists a company that gives a subscription-based small credit line for wage workers in North America? As we know, the credit system is completely broken and many wage workers are finding it hard to pay the credit card and there is no affordable access to credit. By connecting your bank data, if there exists a company that provides you an interest-free credit line to help you cover your early bills and the living expenses that arrive before your next pay. Yes, there exists a company and it's Nibel. So Nibel helps you avoid an overdraft fee and pay lenders while building your credit. So let's get more view on Nibel and hear it from the CEO, Han Shaw. Hello, Han. Welcome to the show. How is your day today? Thank you so much. I'm having a great morning. What about yourself? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you so much. It's so refreshing to have you here today. And I'm so happy to welcome an entrepreneur, you know, uh, before starting, I want to give the listeners a quick info about Han. Han graduated as a bachelor's student from the University of Waterloo, majoring in computational mathematics and software engineering. He worked as an internet, Shopify, Amazon, North, and Yext. So he's a present co-founder and CTO at Nibel, a very kind of mobile app that rewards you for your good money habits. So on the idea of rewarding someone for a good money habit, itself is new. It's brand new, I could say, because I haven't heard of any such. It's so attractive as well. Uh, could you tell us more about how Nibel works and its program? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think first we can backtrack to sort of like what the problem we're trying to addressing, right? Is that there are right now over 60 million uh, workers in North America who live paycheck to paycheck. And this problem is getting worse every day, especially now, given where inflation is at at the moment right now, uh, and also rising cost of living. So we're talking about, you know, um, you know, the prices of food, the prices of gas, and a lot of our, our customers and also these uh, workers, they need to drive they, to get to work so that they can get paid. But ultimately, the problem here is, um, you know, a lot of these workers have are super cash constrained. Um, and it's not a question whether or not they have enough money, but it's more of a question of the timing. So their bill, their rent is due on the 1st, but let's say, you know, they, they don't get paid until the 15th or the 7th, right? Then they're going to have some sort of like a cash issue. So we are tackling this problem really on a two prone. Um, so first we're, we are providing sort of like a zero interest um, line of credit to a lot of those people who are ignored by financial institutions. And, you know, we are charging them a very low subscription per month so that they can have a peace of mind and know that, you know, they can access the line of credit um, up to $100 whenever they want. Um, now, the second part, which is the rewards that we're talking about is we're, we're actually seeing, you know, how social media can be addictive through gamifications, right? And we're thinking about using that powerful tool called gamification into something good. So for the long term, we do want to help our customer build better money habits, um, really, um, you know, be better with sort of like predicting like the timing of, of their cash. Um, so some concrete example is since now we are sort of connected with our customer's bank account, we know when they like you know, carry fewer loans, save more, spend less, for example. So when that happens, we essentially reward them with points. Um, and with these points, they can ultimately redeem for uh, rewards such as, um, you know, Amazon gift cards um, and many, many other things that we're going to roll out. Um, but essentially, yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of like tackling on two prone, right? So that we're, we're going to fix a short-term issue with like a zero interest line of credit. But also for the long-term, we want our customers to sort of like eventually be able to avoid carrying short-term debt, um, you know, 
a lot of our customers do go to payday lenders, and that is you know something that is very detrimental and makes their situation a lot worse. Um, a lot of them also carry sort of like debt on their credit card, which is also yeah. really really bad considering the interest. Uh, credit card company charges. So really, we're we're here to sort of reward um, them whenever they make better financial decisions, and also when they develop a good repayment history with us as well. Okay, so you actually has a background in computational mathematics and software engineering, but where does this financial background come from? Like, you have to learn a lot when you have when you are into a fintech company you there is a lot to learn the financial terms the regulations changes for country to country when you start taking your company global so where did you get this knowledge of finance right um i'd say it's mostly from my co-founder um so uh for context my co-founder he's uh, about seven years older than me um so he worked in the industry for a couple of years and he and i we sort of like complement each other. So yes, you're correct. My, my background mostly in tech and software engineering, whereas for my co-founder, he worked uh, about a couple of years in private equity and he worked specifically on merger and acquisitions on the sort of financial lenders. So he, you know, saw firsthand essentially these lending companies um, charging really high costs and high interest um, to the same customers um, to these, a lot of these workers who are sort of underserved. Um, and then, you know, they're pushing this like high operating costs on those customers. Um, and that's sort of like where we gained the initial insight that, Hey, this is a very underserved segment. Um, and this is like, indeed a very big problem that is unaddressed. Like these people have nowhere to turn to, and that's why they accept really high interest and high fees, such as like going to payday lenders, for example. Where did this all get started? Where did you meet met him first? Your co-founder, I mean, co-founder first, and where did this idea did for you? Yeah, honestly, if we go back in time, I think we always wanted to sort of like, um, we he and I, we we always had a common understanding, well, a common vision, really, that sort of like, uh, banking is kind of broken, especially here in Canada. Um, it sort of like has not been innovated for the last maybe a decade. Yeah. And people tend to just accept it. And that is, you know, partially due to the fact that it's super hard to get into, right? Like banks are not opening up. Really, we don't have open banking here like they do in the UK, for example. So that's where we sort of like started. Um, and essentially, we always had this vision that we should do better for, for, for a lot of these Canadians and, you know, by extension, North Americans as well. So we actually first started with, um, you know, buy now, pay later. Um, that's when we thought that, Hey, you know, if we can help people really sort of like, um, you know, break down their payments when they need to buy appliances. So we focus mostly on appliances and furnitures because those are everyday essential things that you need to buy. You know, for example, your washing machine breaks down, you need to buy a new one, but if you're cash constrained then you know, you need to find some way to finance it. So essentially that's where we started. Um, after some time, you know, like we realized that, Hey, this is a space that is getting very, very squeezed and that it's essentially a problem that's already solved, right? If you look at Paybright, um, Klarna, for example, they already after solved pay. this issue. After pay, they already solved yeah. this issue. Right. Um, and especially now that Apple is entering the, 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 the playground as well. And the other major thing that made, made us pivot was we realized that, Hey, you know, like Paybright has almost exclusive deal with Shopify. And that's really the way like you can scale in the future. So, you know, like we realized two things, one, there's no space for us. And number two, you know, this is already solved problem. So there's no point in trying to solve it, you know, again. Um, and that's when we sort of like took a step back and look at sort of essentially where our train of thought came from. And we realized, Hey, like there's this segment of sort of like below a thousand dollars line of credits, you know, with no interest line of credit below a thousand dollars. That is essentially not addressed. And the reason for that is that banks are actually, they don't want to address it because the profit margins are not good enough for them, right? Banks have very, very high operating costs. Like think about branches, they have staff on payroll, all of them are faxed. Like, you know, we're talking about forms, um, stored in cabinets, we're talking about like a very bloated operation, right? And, and for them to sort of like focus on the below a thousand dollar line of credit is, is 
straight up not profitable for them. And also they carry higher risk. So there's in no way they will ever focus on that segment. Um, you know, when you when you go to a bank for a line of credits, it's usually $10,000, $30,000. Like you'll probably get it if you're like a medical student or an engineering student um, or, you know, your medical resident, whatever. But a lot of those, our customer cannot even access that because they're not considered traditionally as prime, right? Um, so yeah, and we also realized that, hey, you know, like, our entire system is built on this credit score system. And, you know, that is, that works for a lot of people, but it also does not work for a lot of people because you're essentially reducing people's very complex situation into a single score, right? Someone, let's say who, you know, got fired um, and missed one bill payment on, you know, I don't know, Roger's bill, right? Um, Because they really couldn't afford it. Then all of a sudden, you know, Roger's go to collection and then their credit score dips around 400, 500. And, from now on, they're essentially shunned by every financial institution. They're going to go to a bank and everyone's going to say no because their credit score is too low. So we really believe in giving people sort of like, you know, a holistic look. And that's why we don't look at credit score. We actually uh, connect, ask them to connect with their existing bank on our platform. And we sort of look holistically at all of their uh, banking aggregated data. Um, so to paint a really whole picture. Got it. Like once you're explaining things like, quite sort of understanding what's the need of my will as you have mentioned the financial system here is not open enough to give people enough loans most of the people doesn't even know there are certain loans that exist there are certain reinvestments that they can make even with taxes everything i i think nibel has a more purpose that that's cool and uh you know starting a journey as a young entrepreneur is not easy you have to have an ample of knowledge from, you know, ample of basic knowledge without guidance moving from one stage to the other is not what people thinking of. So who was your mentor at your early stage? Oh boy. Um, on topic of mentor, um, personally, I, I don't think I ever had a mentor and, and we can talk about this later on, like about like sort of mentor in general. Um, I do had like a lot of role models. Uh, people who I look up to, who I try to learn from. So what do we come to realize that there's sort of essentially two type of, I guess, successful people, right? You have people who were just born smart and genius and know to do all the right things, but those are very, very small segment of the population. Then you have the other kind, which is like probably 99% of people who are successful people, right? And how they succeeded was that they were smart enough to learn and to sort of like change your mind and to sort of always adapt to, you know, do the things that they're probably uncomfortable with so that they can become more successful. Um, and I definitely think of myself as like in the latter category. And, and that being said, like, I think, yes, having role models is very important. Um, unfortunately, I did not have like a specific one person mentor, but I did look up to a lot of uh, my friends who were co-founders. I did look up to like a lot of people who were, who were very successful in life, um, you know, books as well. So really like, you know, you, you just extract value parts of what you like from different uh, people. Um, and, and that is like essentially very sort of low cost and free, right? Like not everyone is born with like having a personal connection with someone who is successful and who can become their mentor, right? If you have that, then it's like, obviously amazing. That's amazing for you. Like, you know, you should capitalize on that definitely. But I think for a lot of people, finding a mentor is, is probably the hardest part. Finding a good mentor is the hardest part um, because there are a lot of mentors out there. Some of them are not not all of them are good and the good ones tend to not have time for you. So it's like this weird spot where you're just like, well, okay, well, you got to like DIY, you know, you got to do it yourself. Right. Um, and then it's like, okay, how, what's the next best, best thing to having a mentor? Well, the next best thing is to sort of have a bunch of role models from whom you can learn. Do you think, is it necessary to have a mentor at any point in time? Have you felt that, okay, if I had a mentor at this point in time, it would have been better uh, have you ever regretted any moment like that? Um, I'd say like, well, I wouldn't really know since I never had one, but I guess, yes, I guess it's always better to have a mentor, right? Like, I think we all prefer it. It's much easier as well, right? To have someone hold your hand, especially through tough times, right? Someone who's going to be like, oh, it's okay. I've been through this. Like, let me show you how to like, essentially, you know, unscrew yourself in this situation. But I think realistically, like for, mo- for most people, you know, they're not going to have someone like that. It didn't happen for me. And, 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 you know, I don't think it's happens for most people just because, you know, like 
like I said, it's really hard to find a good mentor and good mentor tend to not have time for you. Uh, so it's like the weird spot. Um, so yeah, it's always nice to have, but there's also, there's also like on the bright side of thing, like a silver, silver lining in this like mentality of figure it out for yourself is that it really tests you to your capabilities and it tests your grit. It puts you to the test. So like, not going to lie, there were times where my co-founder will and I were like, oh my God, this is so messed up. Like, how are we going to even like, you know, solve this problem? It seems impossible almost, right? But it's like little by little. So it's definitely like um, that you solve it. And it's so it's definitely something that like, you know, there's a silver lining is that when you do it yourself, it does test you more and you do come out of it stronger. Um, and, you know, sometimes maybe having a mentor who will hold your hand too much might, you know, basically one day if the mentor leaves, then you might be really like find yourself in a bad place. So honestly, I'd say it depends. Uh, personally, I think, I think I would have less stress if I had a mentor, <laughs> I probably have lower cholesterol levels, but um, I don't, I, I, I don't think it's really a deal breaker. Um, and that if you can figure it out yourself, like at the end of the day, it's always like, you know, like you can't guarantee that anyone's going to stay with you and hold your hand your whole life. At the end of the day, you got to build what you want to build and you're going to probably going to be alone um, during the toughest part. So for, for a startup company, be it a small or a large scale, uh, the strategy for bringing it up is so important from the initial stage. If you lose a track in anywhere, you're going to go into a trash. So can you explain what is exactly a business strategy and what exactly is a growth strategy? How do they differ? Okay. Um, well, I don't really have like a textbook definition. To be fair, I, I, I'm not a business person at all. Um, so I, I guess I can, I can try to answer this to my best. Um, but like from my perspective, right? Like growth strategy is only a subset of your overall business strategy. Like you need to have a very clear business strategy and probably like a business model uh, to get started. Right. And even before that, you need to have a very clear like problem that you're trying to solve. I think way too often it's easy to sort of find a new piece of technology and be like, Oh, this is really cool to build with. Right. Like I was, you know, I worked at North, which for some of, I guess your listeners who don't have context, they build sort of those like AR augmented reality glasses. Right. And those glasses are really cool because you put them on, it doesn't look like, you know, any other, glasses they look like regular glasses but you do have a projection on it you can control your spotify playlist all those things projected directly and nobody else can see only you and it's really really cool like don't get me wrong like i think all of the employees including myself we bought into that cool aid right but unfortunately north was really unable to sell um their product once they went to market they spend lots of years lots of factories a, a you know, they raised over like $123 million from different um, investors. And they, you know, they have tons of patent. They were really, really strong. They have like over, I believe, um, a couple hundred employees. Um, and, you know, they went all the way to Series E, right? And they could not make a single, like, you know, they could really scale in, in terms of sales. They open up pop-up shops. So I don't know if you're in Toronto, like in those years, you might've seen the North Glasses pop-up shops. So they end up like, you know, um, exiting by just selling everything um, you know, cents on the dollars to Google and Google got all the IPs. But essentially what I'm trying to say here is in hindsight, looking at North, for example, they didn't really have a clear business model. They didn't have a really clear business plan. It was sort of like a cool piece of technology that was really nice to have and that they weren't solving any real problem or at least not any problem that people are willing to pay a thousand dollars for, which was what their glasses were going for. Right. So at the end of the day, my view of business model and problem is probably the like most important thing uh, you, you can do in your startup. Like, don't worry about growth. If you like, if you're not even sure what you're solving, you know, like I, I believe like, and this is like similar story to what Y Combinator, like Y Combinator is saying, which is, you know, have an, have a problem, a clear problem you're trying to under, like solve, have a clear understanding of the problem and see where you can add value. Then quickly have like some sort of an MVP where you can just validate your, 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 your problem. And that one doesn't have to scale. Right. And once you've achieved that, you built sort of like maybe whatever you wanted to build to solve this problem, talk to your customer, really achieve product market fit, which is something that is often skipped in terms of business um, strategy, uh, especially for a startup, because you're like, Oh, you know, I'm getting user, I'm getting traction. I'm getting a lot of, you know, paid customers. I'm getting, making this much revenue. So let's just like, you know, growth right away. Right. And, and, and if you don't sort of optimize, 
your product market fit first and you just grow, it's going to be a very, very bad mistake. Unfortunately, we made that mistake, you know, here at, at Nibble. Um, we sort of grow, we sort of scaled prematurely, right? Because we were focusing a lot on our growth strategy. So as I was saying, growth strategy really is a subset of your overall business strategy. Your overall business strategy is about like sort of like on the holistically what you're going to do, how you're going to make money and what is your problem and who are your customers. And essentially, once you figure that out, which takes a lot of time and effort, then growth strategy, I think it's pretty much you know, straightforward, right? There's like two ways you can, you know, grow really like organic and and, and pretty much paid acquisition, right? And, and I think beyond a certain point, the only real uh, skill, unless if you're building like sort of a network effect, social media platform, really your, your, your safest bet is probably through paid acquisition, as boring as it sounds. But yes, develop your Facebook channel, your Google channel, your Reddit channel, your Instagram channel, and then, you know, trying to like optimize your ad, um, such as like, you know, you have a low CAC, right? Um, so yeah, I think at the end of the day, like to answer your question, growth strategy is a very, very small part. I think people tend to like be hyper-focused on growth, right? Right away, before they even have an idea, they'd be like, oh my God, I'm going to create a Facebook page. I'm going to create an Instagram page. I'm going to start pumping ads, right? And, and it's going to look good on paper. And it, it kind of does. But if you don't have like sort of the optimal product for your customers who are very specific customer, if you don't have the optimal pricing, for example, you know, uh, let's say you have the best product for your customer, but let's say you, you didn't optimize pricing and you scale prematurely, then you're just missing out on revenue. So I think at the end of the day, like it's really easy to get carried away with all these cool stuff. Um, but I think overall, it, like the boring stuff must come first, which is, you know, what's your problem? What's the problem you're trying to solve? What are you building and who are your customers? You know, with all this story, I could understand each and every piece of what you are doing, you have to do it in a correct order else, you know, it's an upside down for your business. Starting from your purpose of your company, if it doesn't satisfy your customer's interest, then it's going to fail. And then, you know, it's true that people directly go, go for growth strategies, starting up a Facebook page, Instagram page, even before even, you know, sorting what's their idea exactly is. Maybe I think what you have explained is very clear for now. To achieve both market as well as the growth strategy, it's very, very important to have such a good team. Without a team, it's, it's not possible. One person cannot have a, a knowledge on every single area. You need an expert to get, you know, get a straight business strategy. And then once it's done, then you go for a growth strategy. So who should a fintech company hire first in order, you know, to move forward? Oh boy, this is a tough one. And, you know, we've spoken about this before this uh, podcast, right? Where it's like, you know, we didn't make, unfortunately, we made, didn't make a few hires that didn't work out well. So this is a really um, tough question, but I want to first address like what you said. Like, absolutely. I think, I think it's, it's unrealistic. Like, you know, no one is born with basically the knowledge from God about how to, you know, build a, a business or a startup right from scratch. Like you mentioned, like the, you know, the, the, the different steps and each one is super important. So I think there's a lot of resource you can learn. So there's almost like, so there's like two sort of school of thought, right? One is like, I'm going to hire good people, um, which works if you, let's say, if you have a lot of money and you have a lot of clout right? Let's say you're like a, the next hot biomedical startup. And then, you know, Bill Gates, just like, I don't know, like shadow you out on Twitter and you have a lot of clout and you also have, let's say a hundred million dollars in funding. So you can hire like people at like 500 K a year, right? Hire all the expert, all the good people. Then yeah, that might be a strategy for you to just hire the best. Um, and it has worked out for a lot of people and a lot of later stage startup do use that strategy. I mean, if you look at Uber, you know, Netflix, Spotify, they're like, you know, salaries are really, really high. And that's because they just want to hire the best. And that works out for them because they have a lot of money. Um, now, the, the other part is like the downside with that strategy is like, well, you know, it doesn't really like, you know, where's your wedge? Like, wh what do you start with? Like, let's say you're just a co-founder or two people or three people with just an idea. And maybe you raise like a pre-seed at like, you know, let's say 300, 500K pre-seed, right? It's like, does it really make sense for you to spend like half of your run rate on two hires that you don't even know is going to provide the value that they claim they're going to provide because they all want to get paid 150K, you know, salary with, stock options and they want snack in the office like it's probably not the best way to use your money like early stage right um and it's a common mistake is which is like i think people fear that you know 
they're not going to be sort of like good enough. So they need to hire the expert. Again, it's a question of comfort, right? I like, I think it's way comfortable for you to just like sit back and let the expert do all the work, right? Whereas like, I think early stage, I mean, we're talking about pre-seed, pre-seed and probably even before pre-seed, right? Just ideation phase, like the only reliable like thing that you can do to grow your business is yourself. So that being said, like you just got to learn these stuff, right? And, and that's what being an entrepreneur is. Like, I think people have romanticized the idea of being a, what being an entrepreneur is, but at the end of the day, it's literally about wearing multiple hats, doing all kinds of roles that you're not comfortable with. I mean, you know, my background's in software engineering, right? Like, I don't know how to do, I don't know how to do the business strategy. I don't know how to do ads. I don't know how to like, you know, um, focus on like calculating, like, wrote like, you know, retention and all those stuff, but you just got to learn, right? Business strategy wise, and you got to find resources, right? Actually, a lot of the resources are out there for free. Uh, they're on YouTube. Yeah. They're for free. Like, you know, for, for your listeners, like if you're interested, why Combinator post all of their startup school videos online for free every year. And it's there. And those are, you know, you do hear from people who have success, successfully built a lot of companies like Michael Seibel, right? Um, a lot of these people have built Twitch. A lot of these people have built billion dollar startups. So, you know, and they're literally giving you the secret sauce, right? Like it's better than hiring an expert because they're giving it for you to you for free. Um, and it's there for you to like access this whenever you want because it's a video. So I think for early stage now, um, from our learning, we realize that early stage, the best thing you can do is probably just learn it yourself, do it yourself. And once you become like a late stage, right? Like maybe like a post seed series A, you know, when you raise like maybe 20 million, 10 million, you know, and then you can then think about sort of hiring expert and the good people. Um, so, you know, like there's always going to be like sort of, okay, you know, it depends really on the situation, right? At the end of the day, right? First of all, is like, is your co-founder technical? Like, can you build what you said you want to build to reach until series, maybe like series A, like without hiring an engineer, right? We were very lucky that is that we could, right? Like, you know, you know, obviously it's probably not best from a mental health, but I can essentially just build it all like all the way down. We don't need to hire anyone. So our personal, our strategy is that we were lucky enough that, you know, we had a business person and a tech person and um, yeah. And, and we're able to scale just the two of us. Um, and, you know, we're, you know, whatever people we hire, we're going to do it sort of passively, right? In the past, we had like hired like a team of like four or five contractors and it hasn't really worked out well for us just because, you know, they just treat it as a nine to five. And when you're early stage, we need someone in the trenches to do go above and beyond, take ownership of the work, right? Um, yeah, so there's, that's sort of like the my nuanced opinion about hiring. Uh, we did make the mistake before and now we're sort of like, you know, back to like being like super lean, hyper-focused and just, you know, um, learn it, do it yourself kind of. Yeah. So when you have first started, like when some people start after finishing their graduate studies or being bachelors, uh, the main focus for them, you know, is to get a job. Even when they have a very good idea, uh, mm -hmm. it's like they feel to go on a safer side than to jump onto something yeah. that they're going to risk everything into. So yeah. how did that you you how did you came out of such a frightened situation? Oh yeah, it's it's definitely frightening. I mean, you know, it was only about um it was not long ago actually that I sent my email. And I still I still have the screenshot of it of me sending the email um saying that I'm not going to take up my exit offer um upon graduation. So for context, I got a few offers and you know, they were paying very very well uh you know definitely very well by canadian standards and decently well by american standards uh you know like you know in the six figures for sure um so like it was really hard i'm not gonna sugarcoat this you know every single moment up until the last minute where i click send it was like the voice in my head was like are you being stupid like like what are you doing man and um you know you just gotta like it, it's just about like what do you what do you think you want to do in life? Right. So, so like the question comes down to like, why do you want to be an entrepreneur? Why do you want to potentially do your own startup? Right. Uh, and I guess, you know, like a lot of people sort of like probably romanticize the idea of being an entrepreneur, right. It's cool. It's hip. I don't know. Maybe, maybe like people respect you more. I don't know. Like, you know, um, Silicon Valley has made it such that like, you know, maybe it's a shortcut to become a billionaire. Right. And 
like whatever the reason is like you know like not here to judge the reason right whatever the reason is you gotta like basically be okay with eating a lot of shit before you make it to that stage right and it's about like whether you accept the fact that you're probably going to be poor on like you know on a very very low salary you know eating like instant noodle um for like a very long time because once you decide to do that it's about like three to five years before you even see any sort of like real growth right um yeah so for me like it was really hard turning down like so the offers and saying like no i'm gonna like do my own thing but personally like you know speaking for myself here like i always knew i wanted to like build my own venture one day and i know that for myself that if i don't do it now i'll probably never do it again like you know like i don't want to be that like uncle who's like at the family reunion, who's like, oh, well, you know, 20 years ago when I just graduated, I could have started a company, but I decided to just work and now I'm just working nine to five, right? And, you know, again, that's not, that doesn't apply for everyone, right? But I knew for myself that if I don't do this now, that if I don't even have the courage to do it now, like, you know, 10 years, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years later, when I'm going to be paid a lot higher with a family and a mortgage, and kids and cars and you know all friends and like you know and stock options who's going to be vesting i know i'm never going to ever be able to to say like you know screw it i'm gonna i'm gonna start doing this right so that's just for me and also like yeah like some people are fine again with like working nine to five and having stability in your life and if that's what you're after after that's good for you my like a lot of my friends are doing that and, and they're they're really having a great time you know what i mean like they're in their 20s they're working um you know a stable job paying a lot hanging out with friends spending a lot of time with family and friends and, and that's that's great like there's nothing wrong about that right not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur so i think at the end of the day it's like just a personal decision and it, it just it's just a question of like do you want this enough for you to be like able to say like screw this i'm gonna quit and for me that was the case so as you told like being an entrepreneur there's a lot of sacrifices included in it your parting time your family time a lot of personal things should has to be put aside and it's it's a lot of sacrifices to make and people who are ready to make those sacrifices only can become a successful entrepreneur rather than becoming an entrepreneur itself so we were talking about hiring let's come back to that and what do you think were the initial mistakes being made by a startup in their initial excitement state yeah i mean initially i think it's really there's a couple of mistakes that's easy to make right one is like oh my god that person worked at google therefore they must be a genius right and therefore i must hire that person at whatever cost you know oh he's asking 120 base plus stock okay let's do it right um you know, I think that is a, one of the biggest mistakes, at least from my perspective as a tech person and hiring mostly engineers, right? Um, that is a big mistake because just because they worked at Google doesn't mean that they're the best fit for a startup early stage. Because especially if they worked at a company like Google who have a very good support for their engineers, right? We're talking about really good tooling. We're talking about really good like policy, you know, food and all that stuff. Essentially, you know, like they're a little bit spoiled as engineers, right? They're used to like having a lot of support, right? You know, and, 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 you know, I know a lot of people who work at Google and realistically, you know, you work about four hours a day of actual work. The rest is just like, oh, grab a coffee, take a meeting, you know, lounge, go hang out with your friends. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And that's fine, you know, like, because they're, they are putting really good quality work, right? But I think that's not what a startup is looking for at its early stage. At its early stage, a startup, you need to be scrappy. Literally, like the quality of your code matters like okay as long as it gets gets it working and it's scalable the rest is just diminishing value at that point because you're just spending like engineering hours on building something that you haven't even tested yet and also as a startup your product literally changed on a week by week basis right like you will push out a pro product and you'll realize you know if you spend let's say like those some of those like big company engineers very experienced right maybe 10 years experience who spend like one month creating like a design document for this like system, right? Or realistically, what's going to happen for a startup is that you're going to, you're going to build this, you know, let's say you take one month to design it, it's super well designed, it's super scalable, it's super fast, it's the best quality possible, right? And you build it again, take one month or whatever. And it's again, the best quality, like there's zero bug, the code is like super nice and 
super scalable and the system just works perfectly, right? What's mostly going to happen is you're going to go to market and your customers are going to be like, well, actually, we don't like it like this. We want something else. And then all of a sudden, your co-founders are going to be like, well, actually, screw all that design. Let's like shift this product towards something else. And all of your design and your hardworking things just went out of the window and you just came up with a, like a Frankenstein of like, you know, something that's sort of like hacked together, right? And that's essentially what like, having a product in an early stage startup is all about. It's just having the minimal, viable, hacky, maybe really not that good quality of code possible because the point is not to have the best quality of code. Like we're not Google here. We're not building a search engine to power the entire world. We don't need sort of our entire server to be like, to have like crazy, you know, P99 uptimes or to have like, you know, very low latency, right? Like our customers, especially if we're solving a really burning problem is that even if you have bugs, even if your server go down, your customer will stick with you. And that's what we realized is that we had outages on our servers and, you know, our customer came back nonetheless, because we were solving such a painful problem for them. Right. So I think one of the biggest mistakes from a tech, from a, you know, engineering and tech side is that you want to go for those like Google engineers, or you go for people who have like 10, 20 years plus experience. Right. And sort of this also applies, I guess, on the business side and, and, and maybe more on like, you know, maybe other side of the business as well, which is like, oh my God, that person, you know, has 30 years plus experience at like, I don't know, like EY or some like good firm or even like a medium, like known firm. Right. Um, well, we also realize that experience don't mean shit in startup. Like, and if anything, it can actually hurt you because someone who has like a 20 year plus experience also means that they have a very big ego and that they're very unlikely to change their mind. They probably made a really good like opinion about how things should be done. And they're probably really unlikely to change their mind. And as a startup, like our biggest value is how quick can you change your mind and how quick can you adapt to new information? Right. And so a lot of those people who have 20 years plus experience who are used to run it business in the old way, it's probably like a, you know, they're probably really good at what they're doing. They're definitely really good at what they're doing in their own, you know, at their previous job at a big corporation with a big support, what it's different, right? Starting a startup is fundamentally different. And essentially you can't have people who are just have a big ego and unlikely to change your mind. I mean, you know, my co-founder and I, we change our mind, we change our perception, like, you know, maybe thousands of times already. Right. And now like, I might seem like I'm super opinionated about stuff, but Hey, you know, like my friend used to say, I have very strong opinions, but they're weakly held, right? So you like as a founder, your biggest asset is how quick can you adapt to new information and how quick can you change your mind? So, yeah. As a fintech company, where do you see you have a potential competitor? Which companies you see has your potential competitors? I mean, there's like always a lot of like, you know, I think fintech startups, right? It's a really hot space. And I think it's fair to assume that eventually whatever you're going to be doing, there's going to be competitors. Um, and here's how I personally look at it. Like if there's no one else having the same idea as you, then there's probably something wrong with your idea, right? I think there's so many people out there and there's so many, like it's, it's safe to assume that there's also other people who are going to be smart enough and see the same problem as you or some, you know, and try to solve it either in the same way or some like different variant of ways. So essentially, yeah, like if you, yeah, I think that's, that is always something safe to assume. Um, and your strategy, your entire business strategy cannot be reliant on being first. I mean, being first is great. And I think being first um, and being like the only one, the monopoly is, is amazing. And I think, um, you know, you're going to get like, you know, it's going to help your business a lot. But ultimately, if you look at every other business, no, like, especially if it's like a real business, if you're solving something for real, eventually you're going to get comp competitors later, sooner or later, right? You're going to get other people doing the same thing. Like I can't think of a single successful company who has the sole monopoly, you know, like just, you know, in a free market that is right. I'm not talking about like bells or Rogers and the government just like, Oh no, we're not going to let competition. Right. But I'm saying like in a startup world, right. If you look around every single possible ideas, that is worth building, you know, now this hot space is like digital health, there's going to be a lot of com competitors. So I don't think we should ever be scared of competitors. And that's something that we should always price in as like a founder, even if you're lucky enough to be the first, um, which most often case, you're probably not going to be the first, right? But not being the first doesn't mean that your startup, you know, has no chance, right? If you let's say, you know, currently we're on Zoom right now, right? 
Zoom didn't exist. You know, Skype was probably like ahead of Zoom, and yet no one's using Skype nowadays. Yeah. So your business strategy has to like be focused on sort of like what's unique about you and what exactly is about you um, that will make you win um, against competition. Right. And ultimately, there's only a couple of ways, right? I mean, a couple of legal ways that is. One is you just build a better product. Two is you just solve the problem better. And ultimately, those two things are the only thing that are within your control that you can sort of, you know, make sure that you become the next billion dollar company and not your competition. Um, yeah. So, I mean, competitively, there's like a lot of players in the fintech, but I believe we're each like positioned differently in the sense where, we're each tackling the greater problem that like, you know, there's like a lot of underserved people and they, they can't sort of get access to sort of cash and money and have basically overall just like, you know, being served, you know, they're underserved by banks, right? Like we're, like, there's tons of digital banks now as a startup and so are we. And, you know, as, as someone really wise once said, like we, like each one of us, if we just focus on a, a single very unique problem or a sub vertical, then there's a lot of opportunity in that, right? So for example, for us, we're hyper-focused on like below a thousand dollar segment, uh, consumer lending at no interest, right? Like essentially that is our core focus, right? Like, you know, um, and that's sort of like, if we can do that very, very well and make our customer really love us and have really, really high retention, like, you know, if we can achieve over 95% or 99% retention, right? Which is like, seems crazy, but if we do it very well and we focus on that and we only take like our wedge into that, then essentially there's a path for us to win down the road um, against our competitors, right? I think most oftentimes competitors are not the reason why you die. Um, you typically die as a startup because of two reasons. One, you're discouraged by competitors. And number two, you're not focused enough on what you're trying to solve. I think too often it's easy for startup to be like, okay, we're going to do this and that and that and that. Right. And they end up doing like five things, you know, mediocrely well. And obviously they're not going to have the traction because, you know, your competitor is going to focus on one of those things and do it very well. And all your customers are going to flock to that. And you're, you're, you're essentially, when you do things mediocrely, you're not going to like have good retention because you're not, if you're not actually solving a problem, well, then they're going to flock to your competitors. So there's that. Um, and that's how I view competition. So I'm not actually not worried about competition and our competitive advantage. There's only one answer to that. It's just build a better product and solve the problem better. So when you are talking, you're talking about focus. You have to focus on one thing at a time in order to get a good traction. Let it be even in studies or something, you know, when you focus for some time at certain point in time, you have, you feel like, okay, this is done. I'm going to give up. Where it's when I compare it to universities or high schools, you have a target because you have to write your exam, you have to focus, you have to finish it. But when it comes to entrepreneurship, you don't have any barriers, you know, that's going to stop you once you hit it. Uh, it's like you still go on, go on, go on. But there's a point when you feel like, you know, I want to give up. There's nobody going to push you. It's only you who has to push you. So have you encountered such a time when you're researching, when you're studying things for the started yeah that's correct i mean i mean you know like i graduated like a couple months ago right but um we've actually been working on this for over a year now um and yeah you're right like i think the biggest it's it's a blessing and a curse so it's a blessing because being an entrepreneur no one's your boss and you basically get to do whatever you want whenever you want however you want which is great um because you get freedom but you know with freedom comes great responsibility right that also yeah. means a downside means like there's no one here to like hold you accountable to the stuff you say you will. Okay, maybe like, let's say, maybe you like, maybe your investor will sort of semi hold you accountable, be like, hey, what's, you know, they're going to check in once a quarter and be like, hey, you know, what are your numbers? Like, why is there, you know, X, Y, Z, right? But I think for yourself, the biggest challenge of being an entrepreneur is going to be like, okay, what do I do? And like, am I doing enough or am I being good enough? Did I say, am I doing what I say I'm going to do, right? And, and, and there's a really simple solution to that which is just set goals, right? And that seems like a very like, you know, oh, like a sort of half-assed answer. And it seems like, okay, it's easy, right? Like, how does that actually help you? Well, I think not only should you set, set like, you know, 
long-term goal, short-term goal. I know, I think this is all like, this is already being solved. Like people already say, 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 say that like, you know, all the time. Right. But I think what specifically helps a startup is that you and your co-founder have to set very specific KPIs. Um, and then we do it here. Like what we're now starting to do, especially now, um, weekly sort of almost like quick retros on our KPIs. So for every week or every month or every quarter, whatever your timeline is like, you know, you need to set very specific KPIs that you want to attain. Right. And they can be like, well, for us, they can be like bullshit KPIs. Like for example, for us, right. Like a bullshit KPI will be like number of signups, but number of signups doesn't mean anything because these people are not transacting customers, right. They're not generating revenue on your platform. Um, so ultimately they don't mean anything, right? So maybe a, a more accurate KPI for us to track is, okay, how many transacting customer? What's our conversion rate, right? What's our conversion cost and sort of what's our retention and all these KPIs. And then we essentially set like semi ambitious yet achievable goal for every month, every quarter, right? And those are the things that ultimately going to hold us accountable into sort of like achieving that, um, so at the end of the day, yeah, like there's no one else to hold you accountable. You just got to do it yourself, you and your co-founder. And I think, I believe the good way to do that is through setting like very specific KPIs that you're trying to attain, right? For example, you say, oh, I want to like, I want to reach to like 100K, 500K, like, you know, AR annual revenue by end of year, right? And then you're like, okay, so what's the strategy? Then you work backwards. So like, how can we get there, right? You can't just be like, a, like, oh, let's do this. And then just sit on my couch and, and, and chill all day, right? Then you're going to work your way backwards and be like, okay, how the hell am I going to achieve that, right? Well, first I'm going to grow to 100K, you know, AR, which means, you know, that means around maybe eight to 10K per month in revenue, right? So then every month, if I'm not at eight or 10K revenue, then I know, well, okay, something's going wrong. I'm not going to achieve my goal. Right. So, so like, I think it's really important to set KPIs, but also to set tripwires, right? Like, you know, you got to be basically the more sampling, the more retros you do, the better it is. Right. Like if on a week by week basis, you have like weekly semi-small, like sort of like, you know, tripwire metrics, right. Let's say if you don't attain this number in this week, then you need to like alarm bell should go off and be like, Hey, what are you not doing? Like, what are you doing wrong? And then you look at this thing like, Oh my God, like I forgot to do X, Y, Z. We need to work on X, Y, Z. Right. And you set those kind of goal. And then you hold yourself more accountable because if you don't do them the next week, this alarm is going to go off again. And then you're going to like seem really stupid between you and your co-founders. Right. So I think ultimately just having that sort of accountability towards yourself and towards your co-founder is ultimately what's the only thing that's probably going to work in driving you to do the actual work. Um, because when, like when people, when people like just like sit back and don't do anything, that's typically because they don't have a really clear goal. Right. Like I can just be like, oh, let's do a startup. But like, you know, what's a successful startup by end of year? Where do I want to be in terms of revenue, in terms of, you know, growth, in terms of traction and retention? If I don't know these metrics on top of my mind, then it's like, I don't know if I'm, you know, then it's just a waste of time. You know, then I, whatever thing I'm doing is just unfocused. Right. So everything you, you do must serve a specific purpose. And you need to establish that purpose first and work your way backward, just like you did with your studies, right? Oh, I want to get like 95% on this test, right? Then how can I do this? And then, you know, essentially you work your way backward. Well, I got to study. I got to cover this material. I got to like, you know, go to this, like maybe like help session, you know, figure out this concept, you know, and then do like, let's say I want to do like 10 practice, you know, test or, or something like that, right? Or, or questions in this sector, whatever. So it's essentially the same. Um, you know, it's just like a question that now you just don't have the physical test, you know, on that date, but by all means, you should set like, you know, a date in which you want to achieve those goals. Right. And for us, it's like December 31st. Your company is fintech. Money is not where people want to play with because in today's economy, as you said, there is a high inflation and the market is completely up, upside down. You can't predict what's going to happen in next one hour in the market. So how did you build trust among your customer? Like the first customer, they have to trust you. As you told in KPI, not every customer is your customer. Some sign up, just they leave it. But the target customer are going to stay with you for a long time. Like they're going to retain for a long time. So how did you build the perfect trust with the first customer? Yeah, I mean, trust is always important, right? So like, um, and trust, like the only real sustainable trust is built over time. Um, 
So that's a tricky question because, you know, like it, it's a, it's a balance between how bad, you know, your customers want your product versus how you build trust over time. Right. Like, I think why Combinator like to phrase the problem as a, is it, is it like your hair is burning problem, right? Let's say right now your hair is burning, you know, and someone out there, maybe not have the best solution, don't have water, but let's say have like a, like an app that semi solves your problem. Like, I don't know, like sand, for example, right? If your hair is burning right now, like, you know, like your threshold of trust is going to be much lower to pour that sand on top of your head so that it can extinguish the fire. And that's, that's an analogy that's sort of like why commoner to like to use. And what that means is yes, trust is important. And oftentimes if you see like a lot of pushback for people from even trying out your product, um, it could be two things, right? First of all, you're just really sketchy and you need to work on that, right? So like that means presentation, that means communication, right? Like if your website looks really sketchy and like a Ponzi scheme or something, then, you know, then yeah, that might be the reason why your customers are not having a high take up, right? If you don't communicate well, for example, we ask people to connect with their banking data, but we communicate the fact that this is, you know, very secure that we use, you know, you know, the latest encryption schemes and that we don't even store password. We just store sort of like, you know, hashed password, right? So that there's no way for anyone to like do the, you know, to to abuse the data that we have. And we have a very strong data policy, um, you know, privacy policy about customers' data, right? So having those things communicate definitely, you know, is a minimum threshold, right? If you don't even have those things, then it's just like, okay, well, <laughs> like obviously you look very sketch and why would anyone trust you, right? But if you have those things and you're seeing that your take up is still low, then you probably need to ask yourself like, okay, then is it, you know, is the problem not that burning, right? Because essentially as a startup, you'll never get the credibility of a large company, you know, like people are never going to trust you like they do for CIBC or Coho or any big companies. And that's always going to be a problem. And like, unless if you're like, I don't know, again, uh, unless if Bill Gates tweet about you or Elon Musk tweets about you, like chances are you're going to be unknown and people are not going to know who you are. So they need to, you know, two things. You need to satisfy the minimal threshold of not looking sketch, right? And you need to work on your landing page. You need to work on your messaging so that it's not sketch. Well, you also need to actually have that policy. You know, you just can't say like, oh, we have privacy policy and like, you know, donkey away customers' data, right? You need to be very careful about that as well. Um, but then beyond that, it's about like, you know, how urgent is the problem you're trying to solve? So luckily for us, we started very small. Uh, we, we, we found a group of people who this product is perfect for solving their problem. And their problem was really burning. It was a lot of people, these they're getting charged by their bank for overdraft, right? And in Canada, that means that's $48 per overdraft. So every time your balance go below zero, bank just slaps you with a $48 fee. And a lot of these people also have loans and have interest and they're literally underwater, right? So like they're drowning, you know, um, metaphorically. And, and that is like a feeling that, you know, is really, you know, urgent, right? And we also have like a landing page that is not sketchy and we have good data privacy policies. And we also have, you know, these messaging to communicate to potential customers that, Hey, we're going to take care of your data. We're not going to like just sell it. We're not going to like expose it, you know, like everything's encrypted. It's secure. Right. So we were very lucky that we started with a, with a, with a very small group of customers. Right. And over time you develop trust with them because they use your product. You don't sell out their data. You know, you don't become sketch. You don't screw them over. And over time, these are customers are our most loyal customers, right? We have now customers who have been with us since April, right? And these customers are, 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 are our best customers because the loss rate is super low. Um, and they consistently just use our product all the time because we develop that trust, right? Um, so yeah, like I guess short answer is yes, minimum threshold, don't be sketch. And then number two, make sure you're actually solving a burning problem. And number three, like over time, develop a good trusting relationship. As you said, like transparency of like the privacy and the data policy should also be, you know, given in order for the customers to build trust in you. And my final question will be, what's your view on passion as well as failure? Passion and failure. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think, no, passion is a weird thing. Um, and, and, and please cut me off if I'm going too long on tangents. I tend to be. But um, passion is a weird thing because um, what is passion, right? Like, um like 
there's like always the idea of like, are people born with passion? You know, I uh, might like as a baby, you know, look at a baby who's just born, you know, is that baby just going to like naturally, I don't know, love aviation, for instance, right? Or is that something you develop over time, right? My personal view is probably heavy towards it's something that's developed over time, right? You're exposed to a certain thing, right? And I think through my personal experience, what I come to realize is passion is developed, you know, especially through hardship. So a lot of times you're like, oh, this is really bad. I hate this. And then you look back a couple of years, you're like, oh, this is actually pretty fun. And over time, before you even know it, you kind of love something. You love to do something, right? This was the case for me in software engineering. Like I did not like to code. When I was learning how to code, I hated it. And I think, you know, my first few years at Waterloo in software engineering was absolutely miserable. I hated every single instance of it. I hated everything about tech, right? And now I can say that I'm sort of passionate about tech, right? So because of the hardship, you know, you go through through your personal growth and you develop something. So yeah, it's a weird thing, honestly, what passion is, right? Now, to tackle the second part of your question about like, you know, failure, I think, I think the biggest um like expectation of an entrepreneur is that you need to like price in that you're gonna fail and fail and fail again. Like that's just that's just like you know that's not only is that like statistically what, what is going on, but that's just the reality of like you know life in general. If you look at like the most successful entrepreneurs, right? Like you know, look at like billion dollar startups nowadays, right? Like whether it be that Repolet segment, a lot of these like startups who from recent years, we're not even talking about Facebook or Airbnb. We're talking about like more recent startups who like, you know, went public and now are worth a billion dollars. Right. And, and, and most recently, I think for our Canadian listeners actually planned, um, I, it's a, it's a corporate event management. It's like Airbnb for, um, essentially corporate events. Right. Um, they just recently closed their series a, uh, for $18 million. I, I know both of the co-founders personally, um, before I went to uni, but for example, their story right now, people look at their, how successful they are in closing series a now, but when COVID hit, right, they went from 47 people to 12. Right. And I think there's a Forbes article about them. Right. Um, and, and if you, if you read the article, it's truly inspiring. What kind of like failure they went through. Right. So like, you know, like, Overnight, they essentially the revenue went to zero because every in-person event was canceled yeah. due to COVID. And it went like that for almost two years of COVID policies, right? They, they didn't know if they'll ever have generate revenue again, if their business will not crash, their burn was super high. So they have to cut their staff, right? And those are just like, you know, failures on different scale. So everybody go through failures. And if you don't go through failures, then like, there's probably something wrong with you. Um, you know, you go through failures through testing your ideas. They fail, you know, once you raise money and everything seems to go well, something's going to, something's going to come. The universe is going to, you know, screw you over and you're going to fail again. And you're going to fail and fail and fail like throughout your entire like life. Even when you go public, right? Like, like a Sonder, for example, right? Like you, you go public, you think everything is safe. You finally win. Well, you can still fail, right? Like Sonder just went from over billion dollar valuation to now that we're down to 200 million, right? Like, you know, people's net worth basically got reduced, <laughs> you know, by orders of magnitude. Um, and it's like, yeah, you're going to keep failing your entire life. So if you're fail, if you're like afraid of failing, then like, by all means, like, you know, should you be an entrepreneur? Probably not. If you're like really, really that like fearful of failing, then you should just probably take the safe option and just, you know, work nine to five. Right. And that's okay. You know, like at the end of the day, it's about you. It's about like, what's best for you. What's best for your mental health, or maybe you're not ready to fail right now. Right. That doesn't mean that one day you won't be ready to like start your own company. But if you decide to start your own company right now, you got to be ready to fail and fail again. And it's about what do you do when you fail? Right. Like, like the way I characterize it is essentially there's two ways to fail. Right. There's one way to fail where it's like banging your head against a closed door, trying to open it. Right. That way of failing is not scalable and it's probably not going to be good for you. <laughs> um, like, you know, and it's going to be a waste of time, money, and like probably like, you know, detriment your mental health. Right. But there's a smart way of failing, whereas like every time the door closes on you, you're trying to find a key to open it. Right. So we always got to be smart in how we fail um, and to look at why we failed. Um, and to, again, ideas of being open minded. You know, there are assumptions you made, there are things you thought of, ideas you have that led to your failure. 
So it's really important that you take a sober look at yourself and be like, okay, you know, what strategy, you know, what business decision, like, or, or, or strategy have I have led me to this failure and how can I, can I undo this and make sure I don't do it in the future and then start and start again. Right. So that's a smart way of failing. So I think as a founder, you got to always be prepared to fail all the time. Uh, I think like everybody should have an, to take an inspiration from you. The way you explain things was really, really good. And thanks Thank for you. your time to explain us everything. And I am clear. Moreover, I could say I'm so clear about what I, I wanted answer for all these questions. That's so amazing. Thanks. Thank you so much. I, I got to say like, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm very opinionated. I can talk on for hours. So thank you for, for bearing with me. So thank, thank you very you. much for, uh, yeah, for the time. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Han, for this wonderful information for today. And uh, thank you to all the listeners. I hope you guys gain a lot of information from the upcoming episode. Stay tuned for the next episode. Until then, it's your host, PJ, and you're listening to Entrebind.